Ali Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Turning Point series, where we hear from both famous and ordinary folks about turning points in their lives. What it was, what came before it, what came after it, and where they are now. And today we are joined by Bill Bachman, who the Washington Post profiled, and their profile started out like this. Bill Bachman had the perfect Washington career. He was a partner at Williams & Connolly, consistently ranked as the city's top law firm. Lunches came from the firm's beautiful attorney dining room. He had a closet full of suits with his name embroidered in the lapel. He specialized in antitrust cases, environmental crimes, and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. His salary? Let's just say that life was comfortable. Bachman also had some nagging doubts. We'll get into those nagging doubts and what led Bill to leave this plush life to become, of all things, a Division Three college football coach. Yep, D3 college football. And he's thrilled about it, as he should be. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. You bet. Bill, before we get into the turning point, tell us about your early life, where you grew up, how it shaped you, your parents, and the impact on all of that uh, leading up to that turning point. Well, I grew up in New Jersey, and... Uh... My father was a judge, and he had graduated from Harvard Law School and was a state court judge in Middlesex County, and my mother was a school teacher. And so, um, you know, I grew up uh, around a teacher and somebody involved in the legal profession, and so when I uh, was thinking about what I wanted to do the rest of my life, I guess I I favored my mother's side, at least initially, and uh, I was an education major in college, a physical education major, and then uh, pursued... um, a career as a teacher and a coach, you know, initially uh, when I graduated from college. And what, tell me about that experience, what you liked about it, what led you to leave that experience after college? Um, I graduated in 1982 from Westchester University outside of Philadelphia, and my first coaching job was at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. I was there for two years, and then I was at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia for six years. Um, and I guess, um, and then I went to law school. So uh, with respect to uh, some of the frustrations I had when I was uh, at least initially uh, in that profession the first eight years was that uh, so many things that you do when you're teaching a coach and you're, you're being evaluated on things that are really beyond your control. A lot of your life or livelihood is in the hands of 18, 19, 20-year-olds and you know, there were periods of time there that, you know, that can become frustrating. You know, you lose control in, in some measure. Um, and so um, I went to law school um, probably without some sense that I was going to leave the coaching profession. I went to law school to kind of enhance my resume, so to speak, um, to make me more um, protected, I guess, if, to the extent I wanted to stay in coaching. To enhance my resume, there were some college football coaches at the time. This was back eighty nine, ninety, that had law degrees. I had gone to a small college, and I thought if I got a law degree, then I would maybe reassert some control over my life and, and remove some of it from the hands of the eighteen, nineteen, twenty-year-olds. That, of course, was a fiction, you know. But but at least that was the thought process. Yeah, and it worked at least for a while. I mean, I, I went to UVA law school. And I think for very much the same reasons you did, a pretend backup plan that I really had no plans of pursuing. 
Um, and luckily for me, I didn't sit for the bar and I didn't. Um, but uh, it was because that wasn't a part of my life and my passion. What, so what happens next? You, you, you go to law school and you go to a, a, a fine law school. And the next thing you know, well, there goes the coaching and you're a lawyer. How did that happen? Was it a, was it a cog- cognitive choice? Did you figure I'll just do this for a little while, make some money, go back to coaching? Or the heck with coaching, enough's enough. Two things happened that were uh, were surprising. One is, um, um, if I can be, you know, let's, let's be perfectly honest. I got divorced and I had a young child, and I couldn't imagine myself. And I don't judge anybody who does this, but I would never imagine myself leaving my son behind and getting back on the kind of the gypsy lifestyle that is college coaching. You know, you can just have to look up anybody's resume. They've coached at fifteen colleges all over the country. I couldn't leave my son behind, and secondly. I got really good grades at Georgetown, better than I had gotten as an undergrad. And so all of a sudden, A, I didn't want to leave, and B, I had an opportunity to work in a law firm in Washington, D.C., given the grades that I had gotten at Georgetown. And so those two things almost conspired to put me on this treadmill that I never expected to be on. Um, and um, before you knew it, um, I was at Williamson. You know, I did a clerkship with a federal judge, a very prestigious clerkship, and then uh, ended up at Williamson Conley. And I was like, I was into it a couple of years, and you know, and my money, you know, I had lots of money, and I really and worked with wonderful people and had a great job. But it kind of, like I would say, snuck up on me. Right, it snuck up on you. And by the way, this is no disrespect to people who pursue law as a profession. It's all about what you love what you want, what's best for you, and what's best for your family. And very often in life, we men do this. I think women do it too. We go down a path. We find ourselves not happy. Some of us stay on it, and we end up dying miserable. And other of us get off the track and try something new. And it's not easy to get off the track. Talk about, if you can, uh, real shortly here, a couple of one nagging doubt you started to have. You only have about a minute here. When we come back, we'll really dig into the doubts and what led to that, that sudden a career change or not so sudden career change? That, that's a great question. I guess the thing that I could say in a, in a quick minute is that I came, I was doing fine at the law firm. I was doing fine and doing good work and representing the clients well and achieving and obviously got an opportunity to make partner. But I began to wonder whether or not, um, I don't know that God puts you on this earth to be great at everything, to be great at multiple things. And I began to wonder whether um, there was something I could do in the world that was better than what I was doing. There were people at the law firm that are literally the best in the world at what they do at Williamson Conley. And I wasn't the best in the world at that. But I thought there might be something out there that I could be best in the world at. Yep. And thought that was teaching. Yep. And, what, and that's what you thought it was. And in fact, I think you knew, sort of, Bill, from your prior experience. We're talking to Bill Bachman. And we're doing our Turning Point series from law partner to Division Three college football coach. When we come back, we're going to hear how that happened. Bill Bachman, Turning Point. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Bill Bachman, a law firm partner in Washington, D.C., who turned Division Three college football coach at Catholic University. That, too, is in Washington, D.C. And, Bill, we were talking about these nagging doubts, and that is, what is my God-given talent? You know, my dad was a great teacher. He was a great educator from New Jersey himself, a little town called Bergenfield, and that was his question every day when he woke up, when, even when he was superintendent at schools. What's each kid's God-given talent? What is it, and how do we put them on that, on that track? Uh, whether it's working with your hands, working on cars, or whatever it might be. And teaching kids will be a lot easier. My dad was a great teacher. And you had a love, it turns out, for teaching, Bill. And you really couldn't really get at that at a law firm, could you? No. Um, you know, like I said, um, uh, I... I coached and taught my kids when they were younger uh, throughout their lives, and I guess the precipitating event for the transition here was when my son turned 13, he kind of aged out, and my teaching coaching fix, I I didn't really do anything for fun other than teach and coach my daughter, my son, their various teams, and when my son aged out, I was, like, I, uh, there was a huge hole there that wasn't being satisfied, um, even recreationally, and so that led me to reach out to colleges in the D.C. area to see if there was a place that I could help. Well, you know, you you were always teaching your kids, and it sounds like you've got some great kids, Bill, and there's nothing we can be prouder of in our life, and our greatest life work is our progeny. It is our kids. But you were teaching your kids to pursue their dreams, to do what God had intended them to do, to figure that out, and yet, at the end, in the end, you weren't doing that yourself, were you? Talk about your kids and how they impacted this decision. Well, we spend so much time with, you know, I have three children. I'm blessed, as you're right. You know, you're so proud of your kids, and you preach every day um, uh, to chase their dreams or uh, to believe in what they want to become, and they can become anything they want to. And, um, and, and me and my wife talk often about the fact that, um, I had this harboring thought in my head that I should be doing something other than practicing law in Washington, D.C., yet I was, so I was talking, saying one thing to my own children and how they should live their lives, and I was living it a different way. And so um, this decision not only was good for me, but it was good for them because it was an opportunity for uh, them to see me um, practice what I preach. Um, and so after they got over the initial shock of, you know, some of the things that go along with working at a, at a big Washington law firm, you know, um, they were so proud and so excited, and they're excited to this moment, to this day, about uh, their father kind of fulfilling his dreams, which is what we tell them all the time, um, you know, to, to do the same in their own lives, not just today, but uh, next week, next month, next year, 20 years from now. Well, let's talk about that decision in that time. I remember, you know, here I am coming out of University of Virginia Law School. The world's my oyster, and I make this really hard decision. I've seen what the law is, and I go, you know what? I just don't want to do this for the rest of my life. A lot of my friends went forward, and I got the, are you crazy? Are you nuts? And, you know, those people I just sort of cut out of my life, but the ones who said, hey, good for you, do what you want to do, and go stumble around and figure out what that is. So here you are. Did you have an internal voice that said, are you nuts? Because forget about the external voice. I had that myself. I had to really battle with myself to not sit for the bar because I knew if I did, then I'd say I'm only going to practice for a year, and then it would be I'm only going to practice for five years, and I knew I'd be 50. And boom, it would be over. 
It would be over. I just I sensed that in myself, and I actually had a couple of good mentors. Talk about that, and talk about how your law law firm dealt with this, and talk about how your kids and your wife responded to this final decision. Well, I think you know initially uh, the "Are you nuts?" conversation you have for years before I was able to pull the trigger. Like that "Are you nuts?" didn't happen in the moments you pulled the trigger. It happened for two or three, four years. Like I think when you make a decision like this. Sometimes people around you think you're being impulsive, but I was nothing. I was not close to impulsive. I had thought about this, talked about this with my wife for years, but those conversations gravitated towards me saying, I must be nuts to think to do this. I must be nuts. Uh, And, of course, I wasn't, but at the time, that's what you think. Um, In terms of the law firm, um, I I think, you know, outwardly I have very good friends, and those those are great people at Williamson Connolly, and they were, uh, to the extent, um, they knew what I was doing, and we got a chance to talk about it. Uh, incredibly supportive. I suspect there probably were a handful of people there who, not completely incorrectly, thought I was being nuts about it. Um, and I think initially, with respect to my own children, um, they they never thought that. I mean, like all kids, you know, the first things people tend to think of it is how will this impact me? How this how will this impact me? And my kids were no different. Um, once we were able to um, kind of deal with that issue in the sense that this career change wasn't going to impact them, then they only saw it for the positive that it was, really, which was their father living his dreams, the same dreams that, um, you know, same kind of dream uh, that he was encouraging uh, all of them to live, you know. So I was, I, I think, really fulfilling my, my duty as a father to be a role model for my kids. But, but certainly at the beginning, you know, and there might have been a day or two days or three days where the kids had some, or a week or so, where the kids were wondering, like, well, you know, like any change that parents undertake, how will this impact me? Yep. And that's, I think that's normal. You know, change of any kind is tough. But if it's this kind of change with integrity, change with a deep reason, I think kids get over those kind of changes really fast, especially if they see a happier, more fulfilled dad and let's face it, so often as parents, we don't take care of ourselves or our marriages, and we sacrifice a lot at the altar of work and at the altar of the kids, and a lot of other things fall behind, in- including ourselves. Two things I think that are remarkable at this, you, you know, there's a, th- a strain in men that says, my responsibility is to provide a really good living. And so what you were leaving behind is a high-paying job for a lower-paying job. Also, a negative strain for a lot of men is status. And so many men try to pursue status, and we know where that always ends up in the end, Bill. Lonely, it doesn't get you what you want. But talk about the, those two things, responsibility and status, as it weighed into the decision. Well, I think uh, the responsibility is the, is the uh, corollary to the point you were making a moment ago, which is the are you nuts conversation you have with yourself, which is, um, you know, this is, uh, you're being selfish. You know, that's the, that's the question as a man you ask yourself. Yep. This is selfish. This is self-indulgent. Um, but I had the, the great support of my wife who basically said, you have taken care of us for a long time. You have supported us for a long time. You've put us in a situation where we can do this. And the only thing that's stopping us from doing it is, is, is just having the courage to do it. So, you know, probably the help of a, of a, of a wonderful wife that kind of pushes over the top. But a, a, a real concern. In terms of a status, um, well, you know, uh, I, I said this um, 
I figured out a long time ago um, that um, when you won a case or you lost a case at, at the law firm, your kids never cared. They never cared. Like, the people that were most important to you never cared. You know, you come home, you win a summary judgment, you know, argument or motion or something like that. Your kids didn't care. And so when you get to a place where you're walking away from those kinds of things, you know, the, the only status that really matters, and I, I kind of was comfortable enough in my own skin to figure this out, was the people closest to me, my wife, my children. And, um, you know, outwardly in the public, the status level may be impacted, but to the people who are closest to you that didn't measure you by the cases you wanted, the cases you lost in any event, uh, there was no really impact on my status. To them, I was who I was. I was a father. I was a friend. I was a husband. And so I, I was I was okay there because I kind of crossed the Rubicon on that thought process. You know, I, I, my, my kids had already taught me um, what was important and what was not important in terms of status. They, they just don't really care. Yeah. They, don't, they don't care. You know, they don't. They, they don't know it. They don't care. They don't want to care. They just want to be close to you. And you know, I, I find, by the way, that status is just a Rorschach test. Me personally, I could care less whether you're a lawyer or whatever you are. But boy, when I see a college football coach or a high school football coach engaged, and I know that all he has to wear is a football outfit with a logo with a school on it, that's status to me. Because uh, that yeah. guy's out there doing what he loves, and he's working with kids and. I, that was what my dad did all my life, and I thought it was the greatest life. He told me he never worked a day in his life. He was able to feed and provide for his family, and that's all you need to do in life. How has it changed your life, uh, if you can, Bill? 30 seconds or so. How does how does this changed your life? Well, I feel like your dad. I mean, I feel like um, um, right now um, my days are filled. I, I work as many hours as I work on the law firm. But I don't feel I'm working now. I don't. I don't. I. I. I, I don't work for a living anymore. I. I pop out of the bed early in the morning. I'm excited, and um, you know, from that standpoint, I do think I'm happier around my kids. I'm happier around my wife. Um, like I said, the, the paycheck has changed, but the hours have not changed. That's right. The, the hours never changed for my dad. He worked a long day, but he loved the product, and the product was children. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Turning point is the subject, Bill Bachman, from law firm partner to D3 college football coach. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And boy, we've done some good ones. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and check them out. Mario Andretti, that's my favorite. I mean, just to get to talk to that man, find out his life story, what happened to his family in Italy, what happened to the land and the vineyard his father had owned and how it was stolen by Tito in Yugoslavia. They lived in an essential refugee camp in northern Italy for seven years, came to America with nothing. And Andretti credits that move with him being a champion racer. He said he never had enough wealth in Italy to ever be a race car driver. But in America, a meritocracy, the owners of race car teams actually wanted the best drivers. So this poor kid from Nazareth, Pennsylvania, becomes the greatest auto racing champion of all time. In fact, the industry nominated him as what, Alex? The the greatest driver of the 20th century? Yep. 
Not bad for a kid who came here with nothing. And those are the stories we tell. Also, Shahid Khan, go on the website, learn about him. He came from Pakistan with no money, and his first job was a dollar and 20 an hour job as a dishwasher as he put himself through the University of Illinois. And he told us that what really struck him was that when he got that first paycheck at the end of the week, he was in the top 1% of all earners from his home country in Pakistan, simply washing dishes. So as he said to us, there had to be a pony somewhere. He knew there was hope. And that's what so many immigrants come here with when they come to this country. And it's a context. They know the past. They also know the countries from which they come. And they know real adversity. And today we tell you a story about Tony Saliba, a finance industry leader profiled in Market Wizards, the founder of Liquid Point, which executes 32% of all options trading in the entire country, and is the author of the authoritative book on options called Managing Expectations. Tony's story in finance is fascinating, but today we focus on how he got there. What character traits did he develop? How did he develop them? Something that all of us, whether we know a lot about the financial industry or nothing at all, can learn from. Here's Alex's conversation with Tony Saliba. Tell us about your parents and their impact on your life, and if any moments in particular to stand out where they really taught you some lesson. It's a great question, Alex. So I'm oldest of seven, and, you know, my parents were uh, belt and wooden spoon people, you know, and you probably know what that means, right? <laughs> so, so you're a millennial. A lot so, of phrase yeah. used too often. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, my mother, uh, rest her soul, uh, passed about five years ago, and um, uh, she was a big driving force, big influence in my life, in that she pushed me a lot. Now... I have to say that I probably, you know, being one of seven and couldn't wait to get out of the house, I probably didn't tell her that enough, uh, you know, before she passed away. My dad, who is still with us and doing great, he worked all the time. I mean, he was a carpenter. He'd come home and get out of his dry coveralls and get into his greasy overalls and go to the gas station pure oil gas station and pump gas every night and on the weekends change oil pump gas and the four oldest boys would go mom would bring us there right after lunch on sunday and we'd spend four hours in on the bay getting a few minutes with our dad while he worked wow just four little greasy Italian boys sitting there watching dad, you know, get oil all over them and, you know, fix cars and work basically 24-7. Well, not 24-7, but basically 16 hours a day, seven days a week. So you had so little time with him that you went to his work to be with him. Right. And the moments, the times that we played ball together, my dad was a great baseball player, Grew up in Detroit and played American Legion ball, you know, and uh, um, he would play with us on occasion. It was real memorable because he was a, he was like the best dad that played with us, but he just was always busy and, you know, always working, so he wasn't there to play with us. Tony also noted how hard his mom worked, too. Soon after her youngest son, Paul, was born, she went right to work as a waitress to earn money for their family of nine. And it was the older siblings who took care of Paul. 
Here's Tony on the impact of seeing all of this. So my parents had obviously huge influence on me just with the embedded work ethic. I mean, Alex, I when I graduated from college, I had already worked 27, 26 jobs. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I was a... Uh, my, my mom, at, at, at the age of uh, seven, would drive me around... Uh, in the station wagon, and I would run and put the little advertisers with the green rubber bands on the doors of everybody's house in like three or four consecutive uh, contiguous neighborhoods, and um, and then I delivered paper. One of my best. How did that work with your mom driving you around? Did she had the kids in the car with you know the younger kids? So I was seven. Did we she had... split the money with you, or were you helping the family out, and you weren't getting any pay? How did that? Well, so. I remember we got paid. We got paid based on the uh, number that we we did, and and it came it came in like a, a bag of rubber bands, and I think there were fifty rubber bands in a bag, and we got like a dollar. So we got like two cents for every one we put on a doorknob, and we probably did, you know, maybe. 500 of those in a two-night period or something like that. And so what is, you know, what is it, like $10? $10. And and, um, my mom put whatever money I made in a savings account, okay? So it wasn't about the money as much as it was about teaching me how to work and the value of work and the value of commerce. You're exchanging your time and your labor for some remuneration. It's one thing to make your kids work, as my dad did, you know, making me cut grass in you know, fifth or sixth grade and then caddy after that, but it's a whole other thing to actually do it with your kid and then spend your own time. Yes. Tony's mom was something else, and her son went on to work without her. I worked in pharmacy, I worked in the grocery store, I um, photographed weddings and sorority parties and fraternity parties in college, I delivered pizzas, I bartended, I, I had a lot of different jobs. I mean, I, I obviously cut grass, I paved um, driveways. Wow. I, At how old? <clears throat> um, I did it in college, I think my freshman summer... Might have been my senior summer, my freshman summer. I caddied, and then, you know, nobody, you know, nobody wanted to have their driveways paved unless it was dry. Okay, so you know, when it rained, I would go and solicit for the paving, and then as soon as it would dry, I would, you know, make a loop and come in. A loop is caddy lingo for caddying a full 18 holes of golf, a so-called loop around the golf course. You know, sometimes I'd make two loops and come in when the sun was going down and pave the thing. And, I, I, you know, go out and buy a bucket of the tar or the, the sealant and um, or sealer and uh, mark up, you know, what that costs, some time for my labor. You know, so I had my equipment and made a business of it. I thought you were going to say you worked for some company. You fi- you figured it out. How did, did you, how did you learn how to I, I actually it? hired a couple guys, some friends of mine, to come along and do it with me eventually. And uh, there was uh, uh, three of us, 
And I can't say I was Tom Sawyer, uh, you know, uh, that uh, let them do the work and I got paid. I worked with them, but I did get a cut. You know, they got paid and I got margin on, on what they did. But how'd you learn how to do it? I guess I just figured it out. And there you have it, folks. And when we come back, more with Tony Saliba. And we keep hearing this recurrently from some of the most successful men and women in this country. Starting with nothing, parents who taught him a work ethic. More old school than new, but a mixture of the two. When we come back, more with Tony Saliba, one of the titans in the business he's in, which has to do with options and trading. But this cuts across all industries. More. Our American Stories. American Dreamers. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our American Dreamers series, and Alex's interview with trader and entrepreneur Tony Saliba. And for Tony, one of the very first jobs he had as a kid, caddying, played a surprisingly big role in him becoming a trader. Here he is sharing with Alex what caddying meant to him. You know, I caddied for some really bright men. And as I told you, my dad worked so much that I, I hate to say it, those men became my father figures. And most of them have passed on, some far too early. Some are still with us. In fact, one of the guys I caddied for was my first partner when I traded. And he didn't know anything about trading, but he did know about business. And when I was having a hard time, I steeled myself to turn myself around. I started getting my footing back, and this gentleman who I caddied for, who was my partner, whose name was Julian, called me up, and, you know, it was big, tall gruff guy yeah. well I see you turned a, a count around and I never wanted to talk to him because I started out poorly and he, he, he gave me a hard time started out poorly well that's an understatement Julian provided him $50,000 and Tony lost 35000 of it in just 6 weeks and then when I, when I turned things around he goes I see you turned the account around and I said I, I did and he said uh well, how'd you do it? And I told him, and he said, well, any good banker knows that, you know, once you find a winning strategy, you increase your, the size of your loans. And I'm like, huh? And he said, you're trading one lots. It works. Go up to two lots. And you got a nickname, Mr. One Lot. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did because of, you know, because of the way I traded. And so this gentleman, Julian, I made him a lot of money, and I wanted to go on my own. We were 50-50 partners, and now the capital that he had started me with didn't really mean anything. I didn't need it. We, I'd made 20 times that already in the account. And uh, we moved from 50-50 to two-thirds, one-third, and then, you know, I just said, Julian, you know, I really I really want to get out of the, uh, the contract, uh, the, our arrangement. And he was nice enough. said, okay, well, just, you know, Watch my positions for me. He lived in Florida. And he goes, you were the best thing that's ever happened to me besides my, my family. He said, you know, you were like star boxer, champion boxer, you know, that I backed or something. He just said, you know, you, you were the best thing that ever happened to me. 
and we stayed in touch over the years very lightly you know not every year do we talk and then in like 2012 he calls me and he says Tony Saliba Julian I said Julian goes next month's my 93rd birthday and I could think of nothing better than to see Tony Saliba for my 93rd birthday. I am going to make it to 100, you know, but I just want to start seeing you on my birthdays. Do you want to come down here and see me? And I said, uh, Julian, yes, I, I will come down. So we go down there and we're going to meet on, you know, I got there Friday night. We're going to meet on Saturday, like for brunch. And he calls me and he says, I gotta wave this off. I gotta wave this off. Arlene isn't feeling well. Arlene, Arlene and his wife, they've been married for, you know, like 70 years or something. Uh, so I, you know, can't, can't have you come today. Maybe tomorrow. It's okay. Well, we're, you know, we're, we're here all day Sunday too. And I wanted to see him both days. So I said, okay, no good. Go back without seeing him. Alex and Arlene passed away within a week or two of that mm. and, and Julian didn't make it three months after that so I never got to see him again and uh, you know he was one of the guys I caddied for back to the point about instilling values these guys that I caddied for they, they played for big money they taught us kids you know the meaning of a dollar and how to have fun and to not over bet, you know they 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 played on every stroke basically, but they had great camaraderie and really good work ethic. And I think beyond all things, and this is what's so huge mm-hmm. in in today's society, and that is they showed me either indirectly and in the case of one guy George Abrams who was really my father figure alternate father figure and he passed away the one, he was the one that passed away in his like 40s or early 50s that I too could be like them that a little kid mm. from the wrong side of the tracks who you know family went you know pretty much for hand to mouth carpenter's salary I mean I think my dad made like $18,000 a year had you know nine mouths to feed and he they instilled in me that if you want it bad enough you can have it too and one of the things that really pisses me off today is this notion that you're stuck where you're you know there are countries and I deal in these countries where you're stuck in a caste system of where you were born or your family, mm-hmm. okay? And we may have one percenters and three percenters and ten percenters, but they're not always the same people. They fall out of that zone, and people rise into that zone. And that's the mobility, the upward mobility that we have in this country that we, you know and I know, and we all should know that, but it is, it is not talked about in the media. And these guys, catting for these very wealthy men and women, showed me that I could have a better life too. So, so in terms of you know, my parents, my upbringing, the experiences I had before leaving, you know, well, 
for starting out on my own because I would I came back and caddied until I was like 21. Yeah. You know? I, I love making loops uh, with these guys mainly because I wanted to be around successful guys, and they get, they made me feel good. You know, I'm sure they weren't all uh, you know spiritually um, whole, ultimately sound men and women. I never you know judged that about them, but we're all complicated people. Yes, great way to put it. You're, that's right. All I know is they open their hearts to us as caddies, and sometimes I think they looked down, didn't look down upon us. They looked on us like these are these are the kids of our future, and if you just give them a break, a, a, a normal break, it could take off. When we interviewed racing legend Mario Andretti, he told us something very similar about upward mobility in America versus other countries. He said that he never could have been a race car driver where he was born. Europe, it was only for the most elite of families there. Not so in America. And as for Tony, caddying even got him a full ride for college through the largest privately funded college scholarship program in the country and one that's exclusively for caddies called the Evans Scholarship. 800 economically disadvantaged caddies receive that scholarship every year. And my favorite part is that the former scholarship recipients then freely donate back to the Evans Scholarship, fueling the very next generation of scholars. In just one recent year, former Evans Scholars donated $11 million back to the program. And Tony Saliba has given millions. Tony is still high on the Evans Scholarship, whose fraternities consistently have the highest GPA on campus, but he's grown much more skeptical about college in general and the low value they're providing relative to their cost. Harvard's out there begging for money because, God forbid, if you don't give, give something, we'll be down to our last $37 billion. What will we do, yeah. you know? I mean, donors fall for it, and that's the tragedy. These endowments are insane. They're insane. Yeah. But I, I put the market at f- five years to 15 years. It's cracks, up. Yeah. cracks will begin to occur. Yeah. You know the MOOC program? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, you can get the stuff for free online, yeah. but you can't get a certification. Yeah. Why? Because, I'm sorry, it's bullshit. You can even get 17 online courses from Hillsdale College and learn much more on the subjects than at any other college. And for a cost of a big fat zero. And to close out my conversation with Tony Saliba, I just had to ask him about his involvement with Mark Wahlberg and Kurt Warner in launching the Elite Football League of India. A professional American-style football league in India. And the whole purpose of doing this was to create content to be packaged and put on satellite for a, just a massively growing population that has lots of bandwidth for entertainment content. So all the games are played in a two- or three-week period, filmed in a professional sense by former NFL uh, producers and edited. There's nobody in the stands except for one little strip of <laughs> fans and cheerleaders to give you that feel. And the whole season You don't have stadium in, costs. Right. You yeah. don't. Put it in a can, package it to uh, one of the 10 sports or, 
or uh, Rupert Murdoch, rock and roll. <laughs> Do you feel like it becomes so popular, you might actually get stadiums and fans? And That's the next stage, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> this is Our American Stories, and it's Tony Saliba that we've just been hearing from. And what an experience that catting experience turned out to be. It changed his life. Now he's giving back, changing countless other young caddies' lives. Only in America, folks. This is Our American Stories, our American Dreamer series. American stories, and we love talking about work, entrepreneurship, and taking care of each other. And this next story combines all of those things in a very special coffee shop, Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it's run by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice to work. And today we have on the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee with us, Amy Wright. Amy, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Lee. I'm glad to be joining you today. Well, Amy, before we get into the business, the idea, this beautiful story, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, and, and how you got to this place where you were thinking about doing something like this. Sure. Well, I was born in New Jersey, uh, but I spent very little time there. My family quickly moved on to Erie, Pennsylvania, where I spent... Uh, through fifth grade, we lived there, and then uh, my family decided to move south, and um, we settled in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my years uh, through high school, and uh, I'm the oldest of five children, so we had a really, you know, fun upbringing, um, very tight-knit family, and I just I loved my childhood, and even back then, uh, my parents say I had quite the entrepreneurial spirit because <laughs> it was not uncommon for me to host weekend talent shows where the whole neighborhood would get involved or, um, you know, do little uh, lemonade stands uh, every weekend. So I always loved small business and um, just trying to try new things and involve my siblings. So that was that was my upbringing. Uh, when I decided to go to college, I wanted to major in musical theater. I was very uh, into the arts and ended up going to the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I met Mr. Wright, I like to say, my husband, Ben Wright, and I met there during my senior year in college, and we just fell in love instantly. We, were, um, we met in September. We were engaged that New Year's Eve, and we married in May. And uh, after that, we moved directly to New York City because I wanted to pursue acting at that time. And, and Ben had had a professional acting career prior to meeting me. And so um, moving back to New York City was a no-brainer for him as well. So we moved um, back to New York. Well, I moved for the first time. He moved back to New York. And um, we pursued acting careers and did that for a while. And 
realized that we were spending more time apart than together because of different jobs that came up. And so uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, we decided we were going to settle down in the South, closer to my family, and um, have kind of a more typical life that way. And so we did that, and we hadn't been there but a few months when um, Ben's agent called from New York and said, do you want to um, go on a national tour of a show called State Fair? which uh, he ended up playing the Pat Boone role in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, he said, well, I'm interested, but I'm not leaving my wife again after having spent the first year and a half of our marriage apart from each other so much. So I ended up auditioning for the show, and we, I got in the show, and we ended up traveling the country doing that. And the show actually ended up going to Broadway, and I had my little taste of Broadway and um, kind of checked that box and said, okay, let's start a family. So <laughs> after that, we ended up back in North Carolina again, and... Um, started raising a family. So, and when we ended up back in North Carolina, at that point, we settled in Wilmington. So we've been here in Wilmington, North Carolina, just over 20 years and um, started our family here and and, um, have four beautiful children, um, two teenage daughters, one that's going off to college this fall. Uh, The second one is going to be a senior in high school. And and then um, Bo was born, he'll be 13 in July, so um, he came along, and and then uh, five years later, his little sister Jane, which we ended up calling Biddy because she's so itty-bitty. Um, so our kids range in age from 7 to 18, um, and I can, you know, share more about them, but I, I, feel, I don't want to ramble too much. Let me know. <laughs> feel no, free no. To tell, <laughs> tell us, uh, you tell us a little bit about about the the four of them, what they're interested yeah. in. Yeah, they're the joys yeah. of your life, and I think it's people who love yeah. life and love kids like you do that also love these special needs kids. So talk yeah. about those kids of yours. Yeah. So my kids are amazing. Um, before Bo was born, uh, Ben and I had had very little exposure to people with disabilities. You know, back when I was growing up, um, I, the kids who attended the public high school that I attended that had special needs were really um, kind of tucked away. And so, you know, I look back on those years and I really feel like I missed out on forming some meaningful relationships with people who I would have been great friends with but just had never been exposed to. And um, so when Bo came along and he was diagnosed with Down syndrome, Ben and I were paralyzed for a while because we hadn't really never known anybody with Down syndrome and were scared of what we didn't know and spent, you know, a while educating ourselves about the diagnosis. And, you know, looking back on that, um, it was a very scary and... Um, embarrassing time, you know, when I look back and I think about how we reacted at first because of what we didn't know. Mm-hmm. And um, the the interesting blessing um, that followed was that Biddy was born with Down syndrome too. And so um, by the time we had Biddy's diagnosis, you know, we were so excited because we knew what Down syndrome was and we knew what a blessing bow was in our lives. And we were ready and and just so excited that Biddy was joining our family, too, and that she also had Down syndrome. Well, when um, we come back, you hold that thought right there. When yeah. we come back, more with Amy Wright 
And that's the founder of Biddy and Bo's Coffee in Wilmington, North Carolina. And already, folks, you're getting a, a taste for the heart and the soul of this lady. And know that in this country, uh, the chances of a, of a young person uh, and a baby being diagnosed with Down syndrome and coming to live is very low. Uh, upwards of 70% of kids are terminated before they're born. And we like to talk about that here on the show and educate people about the, the joys and beauty uh, that, that uh, kids who are born with disabilities uh, can bring to a family and to a community. This is Our American Stories. More with Amy Wright and her wonderful story after these messages. And this is Our American Stories. And we continue our conversation with Amy Wright. And we were talking with Amy about the birth of Bo and Biddy, both diagnosed with Down syndrome. She had two older children, Lily and Emma Grace. And so I think the first thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the coffee shop, Amy, is the in-between part. You, you find out these, the, these, these two children have Down syndrome. You learn from the first. The, the second's easier. How did your kids deal with this at first, and also your family and friends. Talk about the the folks around your family and the reaction to these new children and the new challenges that they were bringing to the family, and also the opportunities and blessings. Right. Well, interestingly, you know, Lily and Emma Grace were still quite young when Bo was born, and we made the decision that we weren't going to address the fact that Bo had Down syndrome with them out of the gate, because knowing that they didn't know anything about Down syndrome just as we didn't. We just wanted them to love him and and not be scared of what they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so they spent the first, gosh, I mean, over a year, we didn't talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome. Now, I will say, looking back on that, I kind of regret that because I think that it's really important to, to talk about that and to you know, to reframe how people feel about Down syndrome and other disabilities. But again, Ben and I were kind of still in that learning curve phase and weren't sure how our girls would deal with it. What we found was, you know, they loved Bo just because he was their brother. And it it didn't matter, you know, when we did finally talk about the fact that he had Down syndrome, it didn't change anything. Maybe it even deepened their affection for him because they realized all that he had overcome. Um, because he was born with bilateral cataracts in both eyes and had gone through numerous eye surgeries as an infant. They were worried about things like that. They weren't worried about whether or not he had an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Right. And then, you know, by the time we had the diagnosis with Biddy, they were, you know, overjoyed again, like Ben and I were, because we knew Down syndrome and we knew what we were getting into and we knew what a blessing this was going to be to have a second child with Down syndrome. You know, looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born, and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um, condolences, which, looking back again, is kind of is ridiculous. But people around us didn't know Down syndrome either, and I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have, yep. as we did for a little while. 
But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this this child is just created perfectly and beautifully and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. It almost sounds like a ministry for you. You know, I, I, I meet yeah. people and I tell them all the time they're creating ministries and it doesn't have to be a church and a steeple. It's just, it has to do with love it has to do with bringing people together and very, very often getting people to see something they might not have seen before through that power of love. And I just, I'm still, I mean, I'm, I'm practically in tears because it's, and not sad tears, just tears of, of joy that you yeah. get watching, watching just something beautiful happen. Talk about yeah. that day-to-day coffee shop experience. Talk about what you see each day. By the way, who makes the place run? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And who are the customers? Well, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, you know, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order. Somebody else will make the beverages. Somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table. Um, Somebody might be greeting people at the door, but um, they are a well-oiled machine. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team. Um, You know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always a thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people, you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like they, <laughs> like heroes. And, yep. uh, you know, people recognize them. They come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued. You're no doubt about it. And what a better way to express that through this coffee shop. And you you don't have a a drive-through. And I found that fascinating. And what's the reason for no drive-through? Yeah, well, we just want the, the whole motivation behind this is to bring people together and to have that experience of spending time with somebody that's different from you. And so you can't really achieve that 
as well in a drive-through. Sure, there's that quick moment, but this is a, the kind of place where you come in and you have a conversation, and you see walls start to come down, and you see relationships start to form. And so it's very intentional. We don't have a drive-through. Um, of course, that would boost our business if we did, but we we just do things differently here. And um, you know, people will line up. People will line up out the door on the weekend just to come in here and experience this. That's a beautiful thing. Tell me, uh, if you if you can, a favorite story uh, that our audience would love to hear uh, from sure. that coffee shop. Well, I mean, one of my favorites is that there um, was a young couple that came in uh, months ago, and we're sitting at our counter, and she was pregnant. And um, one of our employees, Elizabeth, who has Down syndrome, was behind the bar, and she's just so loving. Anyway, she was hugging the mom and, you know, just being real sweet with them and, um as the as the mom left, the pregnant young woman left, she said, um, you know, this baby we're expecting has Down syndrome too. And, uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps to talk about because I think that's just such a wonderful experience for her to have had, to have spent that time with Elizabeth and have her fears maybe dissolved, you know, to see. I mean, I remember when Bo was born wondering, would Bo ever walk? Would he talk? You know, what would he achieve? Things that you you start worrying about as a parent. And for, for that young mother to sit there and see Elizabeth, not only walking and talking, but holding a job and earning a paycheck and being trusted with responsibility. I mean, that had to have been life-changing for that mother. Yep. No doubt. And and with a minute or two left that we have, talk to anybody out there who is in that position right now. They're, they're pregnant. They've found out that their child's going to have a severe learning disability. Talk to that mom directly if you can. I just would say that, you know, we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that things can happen to us and, and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually. And it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against. But the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations. But, you know, the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is the, he doesn't make mistakes, and, and the way that Bo and Biddy were created was quite intentional. And, um, you know, we just have to learn to embrace differences. I think as a nation, we need to do that more. You know, it's just we, we need to recognize that each of us was created perfectly and beautifully in our own way and um, and just love one another. And I think that's the greatest lesson I've learned through raising Biddy and Bo. This is Our American Stories. And if you want to see and hear more of what we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, thank you, Amy Wright. And what a message of love. What a story. And it doesn't get better than that, folks.
This is Our American Story, and it's time for our This Days and Histories, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a fine place to learn all the things that matter in life, art, philosophy, history. It's all there, and if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. And you're about to hear a story about a man, a name you know, but don't know. Let's take a listen. In 1951, radio broadcaster Bill Stern reported the greatest athlete of the first half of the century was sick and penniless. Stern told his listeners, if you don't have any money, send him a card and let him know you still think about him. The two-time Olympic gold medalist is considered by many to be the world's greatest athlete ever to live. Whatever sport you happen to care about in America in 1912, Jim Thorpe did it better than anybody. I mean, if you were a track and field fan, he was the greatest runner in the world. If you were a baseball fan, he was one of the greatest baseball players in the world. If you were a football fan, he was the greatest football player in the world. He happened to be one of the great billiards players of all time, although people don't really know that about him. After five decades, Jim Thorpe's life still plays like frontier fiction. He was born in a one-room cabin in Oklahoma Indian Territory, just 12 years after the Battle of Little Bighorn. He has a kind of mythic quality. His life story was very dramatic. He kind of touches on all of the American themes about the frontier. He's kind of a half a modern sports figure and half a kind of Paul Bunyan American mythic figure. There must be something in the Thorpe legend for people to still be talking about him 50 years after he's dead. The way he played the game so embodied the warrior spirit that Americans cherish in their athletes that it has carried Thorpe all these years and makes him in many people's minds as alive and vivid as he was back then. The specific source of Thorpe's warrior spirit was his Sac and Fox Indian tribe. On May 28, 1888, Jim and his twin brother Charlie were the progeny of Hiram and Charlotte Thorpe. Their father was half Irish and their mother one quarter French, but it was her Indian blood with which she identified. Thorpe lost his brother Charlie from pneumonia at age eight, and both his parents died when he was a teenager. As a child, the rambunctious Thorpe became his athletic father's protege, at times running 15 miles home from school. Jim, how'd you get here? He ran. You ran 15 miles? Only 12, Pa. I came through the hills. I never was content, he said, unless I was trying my skill in some game against my fellow playmates or testing my endurance and wits against some member of the animal kingdom. Although he showed immediate promise, Thorpe was only a star in his schoolyards. That changed in the spring of 1907. Who is that? Attending Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania, Thorpe decided to jump in with the runners during track practice one day. Either I need a new watch or we've got a new runner. Carlisle's football and track and field coach, the legendary Pop Warner, 
immediately met with Thorpe. You're Jim Thorpe. That's right. Glad to meet you, Jim. I'm Pop Warren. It's quite an exhibition you put on this morning. Exhibition? But you know what you did? You ran the 2.20 and 23 seconds flat with your clothes on. Why haven't you come out for the team? Well, I... I hadn't figured on coming out for the team. You just run for exercise, is that it? I don't rightly know why I run. Then Thorpe saw the high jumpers practicing. Hello, Jim. Like to take a whack at it? Go ahead, it won't bite you. He was walking with a couple of uh, friends from the school over, and there were a couple of guys struggling in the high jump. Yeah, get some lift into it. And, and he watched it, and Thorpe handed a couple of books to his friend and went over and jumped over five feet, eight inches in the high jump, the same height these guys have been struggling at. He had never high jumped before, and he was in street clothes. Two years later, the five-foot, nine-and-a-half-inch, 144-pound Thorpe added the first layer in what would become a national mythology when he almost single-handedly beat the opposing track and field team. Pop, it's 2.30. The meet's supposed to start. Well, let's get started. Well, where's your team? Right here. Now, wait a minute. You're joking, aren't you? This is Louis Tawanema. He runs the mile, two miles, three miles and up. And this is Jim Thorpe. And what does he do? Everything else. Get on your mark. Frequently, during these track meets, Jim would compete in eight of the events. At the conclusion of these events, on the average, he would have garnered six gold medals. After it was all over, Thorpe couldn't tell you how he did it, said Coach Warner. Everything came natural. If he wanted to do something athletically, he didn't need coaching, he needed just to kind of observe it. He would watch and he would stare and he would see how things happen and then he could go out and do it himself. Then Thorpe saw the game of football. He wanted to play football, but Pop Warner didn't want him to play because he didn't want his uh, star track man to get hurt. Finally, Pop just said, well, okay, we'll give you a tryout, threw the ball at him and says, okay, you're going to go through tackling practice, and this is a first team, and, and go. And he ran through the whole team. Pop got all over his team members and saying, I want you to hit him and put him down and make him stay down. And they gave him the ball again, and he ran through the team again. So he, Pop Warner made him a team member after that. <laughs> Thorpe was named All-American as a halfback, defender, punter, and place kicker. He was so elusive as a runner. The men who played against him remembered how he would give you a hip and then take it away. He'd, he'd let you think you could tackle him, and then all of a sudden he'd be gone. The hip would disappear, and you'd see his heels. Thorpe could also run through would-be tacklers. Future Notre Dame head coach Newt Rockney learned that the hard way. He was playing left end for the Maslin Tigers, and I was playing left halfback. He slipped through and tackled me for a couple of yard losses, and I patted him on the shoulder. I said, young fellow, you're doing wonderful, but look at all the people up here in the stand that come to see old Jim run. How about letting old Jim run? So the next time I carried the ball around, I hit him in the head with my knee and hip and bowled him over and went on down for a 60-yard touchdown. So after the point, after touchdown, here come poor old Rock with a player under each arm and, and all wetted down with a sponge and I walked him and patted him on the shoulder. I said, that a boy, Rock, you let old Jim run, didn't you? By 1911, Thorpe raised Carlisle to the top echelon of collegiate football. 48, 26, 32, 97, 41. 
Harvard laid claim to the national championship. But before they could do that, they had to play Carlisle. And the Carlisle Indians beat them. Jim, with a badly swollen ankle, ran for 173 yards and kicked four field goals, the last being 48 yards to win the game 18 to 15. Then came that grand summer of 1912. Thorpe shared his plan with Coach Warner. What's on your mind? I want to go over there, to the Olympics. I want to make a record they won't be able to ignore. Good boy. That's the spirit. Which event would you like to compete in? What events are there? It's the 100 meter, 200 meter, the hurdles, the pentathlon. Pentathlon. That's five events, isn't it? That's right. And this, the decathlon. That's ten events. Yes. Enter me into both. Jimmy, you're crazy, am I? That's 15 events. You'd be competing against the greatest athletes in the world. Pop, I've worked hard. Will you help me? Will you? You know I will. Here's sports historian Bert Sugar and gold medalist Billy Mills. On the boat going over to the 1912 Olympics, Mike Murphy, one of the coaches, finds Thorpe in a hammock and says, Jim, aren't you going to practice? And Jim, with his eyes closed, goes, I'm just picturing how far I'm going to jump. Jim Thorpe not only trained physically on that ship, but I think he was one of the few athletes training mentally. Today, visualization, imagery. And when we come back on this day in history, more on the life story of Jim Thorpe. Our American Stories, the story of Jim Thorpe, the second part, brought to us as always by our great partners at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. They have 17 terrific online courses available right now. The course on C.S. Lewis, Be Still My Heart. If you want to know the story of the man behind the Chronicles of the Narnia and some of the greatest writing, theological writing of the 20th century, a man who Winston Churchill said helped win World War II. That's where mere Christianity came out of, those talks with the British people talking about the spiritual war between Hitler and free-loving and God-loving and God-fearing people. And it was C.S. Lewis who rallied the troops and Winston Churchill who commissioned him to give those magnificent BBC broadcasts. And now we return again to the story of Jim Thorpe. When Thorpe stepped off the boat in Stockholm, his exotic appearance and long shambling strides intrigued the Swedes. The Swedish fans began to call him a horse because he had kind of like a gait of a horse. And uh, they would go every day to the stadium to see the horse. And damn if the horse didn't win every day. Jim Thorpe, who had never competed in a decathlon in his life, starts off with a pentathlon and in one day wins he dominated the first event in the decathlon, which was the 100 meters. His shot put was better than anybody else's in the field. So by the time you get to the fourth event, it's pretty much over. He won by 700 points, and that's kind of like winning 15 to nothing in a baseball game or 45 to nothing in a football game. To give you an idea of how good he was in the decathlon, his total points were being achieved in 1924, 28, and 32. As many as 20 years later, they were only doing what Thorpe did. His 
performance in Stockholm was one of the highlights of Olympic history. Afterwards, King Gustav said to him, Sir, you are the greatest athlete in the world. To which he replied, Thanks, King. Well, being crowned the uh, greatest athlete of the world by the King of Sweden, I think, was one of my great moments in life. Here's gold medal decathlete Bruce Jenner. The title World's Greatest Athlete goes along with the Olympic champion in the decathlon. And it is a legitimate standardized test of a person's athletic ability throughout history. He was world-class in probably five or six events. Barring none, the greatest decathlete to ever live. Two days after the track portion ended, he actually played an Olympic baseball game. Baseball was kind of an exhibition event in 1912, and the Americans got their best athletes, and they put Jim Thorpe out there in right field. Thorpe returned home a star. When the boat docked in New York, they were given a ticker tape parade. Uh, and Thorpe was put in the back of an open automobile and driven down Broadway. And uh, people simply called his name and shouted his name. Thorpe is purported to have said, geez, I never knew a, a guy could have so many friends. Thorpe picked up where he left off for Pop Warner's Carlisle football team. He ran spectacularly in a 27-6 Army win. In a Thanksgiving snowstorm, Thorpe had three touchdowns and two field goals in a 32-0 victory over Brown. He was named an All-American again. Two months later, Worcester, Massachusetts Telegram discovered Thorpe's pay-for-play past. During the summers of 1909 and 1910, Thorpe was paid, reports have him earning from $2 a game to $35 a week for playing minor league baseball. This is a very serious charge, Mr. Thorpe. Do you have any defense to offer? I don't know what to defend. I can't see that I've done anything wrong. You did accept money. Yes, for room, board, and expenses only. I wasn't playing for the money that was in it. I like baseball. It seemed like a good way to keep in training over the summer. He naively used his real name, unlike other collegians that adopted pseudonyms to foil amateur rules. But I didn't know about these rules. Jim, ignorance is no excuse. In January 1913, Thorpe was stripped of his amateur status and with it, his two Olympic gold medals. After leaving Carlisle, Thorpe signed to play baseball and be a gate attraction for the New York Giants. In 1915, Thorpe played two football games for the Canton Bulldogs for a pricey $250 per contest. It was a game that uh, had probably hit its biggest bumps in the 19-teens. Pro football was gambling infested. Uh, uh, they didn't tackle. Games were fixed and uh, ringers were brought in and, and all kinds of charges were made against uh, pro football. Pro football was regarded, I think, by the press somewhere in the vicinity of pro wrestling as an exhibition, really. Thorpe legitimized pro football. He was the first major successful hero who played under his own name. He paved the way for other great collegiate football players to start playing in the NFL and not feel like they had to hide from it. The average crowd when Jim Thorpe was not playing in that era was 1,200. When Jim played, it was between eight and 10,000. From 1915, when he first signed with the Canton Bulldogs through 1919, there was just nobody that could compare with him. There were guys that could kick as well, or run almost as fast, or with almost as much power, or play defense almost as well. But no one could do all those things so well as him. 
he decided to stay on as the biggest drawing card for a team that would be recognized as world's champion in 1916, 1917, and 1919. This was an athlete that America would have learned about solely through the newspapers. There was no broadcasting. Very few people ever saw Jim Thorpe perform. Jim Thorpe's reputation and stature as the greatest athlete of the first half century came as a result of his achievements. I think it's remarkable that he became such a figure of prominence basically on his own ability, his own performance, and through word of mouth in this country. He was doing athletic feats that nobody previously had done in a number of different sports. I really believe that Jim Thorpe was a physical mutation. Max Bear wanted him to, to be a boxer. He, he actually uh, sparred with Max a few times, and Max said that he could have been a champion. He even went to Boston one time and won a ballroom dancing contest. Jim Thorpe, ballroom dancer. Some of them that asked if he could do something, and he'd just get up and do it. He didn't ever feel that he, <laughs> he had to train to, to become a good athlete. He was a natural athlete. Fields were slower and boggier. They had terrible shoes. Their jerseys were stuffed with flannel. And when they got wet, they weighed 15 pounds. He could run like that with all that crap on him. My God, how great he must have been. LaDainian Tomlinson has it much easier than Jim Thorpe ever had it. Thorpe signed with the Chicago Cardinals to make one last appearance against the Chicago Bears on November 30th, 1928. Let me take it again, I tell you. Okay, Jim, take fullback. 32 on two. Jim Thorpe played a few minutes, but was unable to get anywhere, Hit. one reporter wrote. One, two, three. In his 40s and muscle-bound, Thorpe was a mere shadow of his former self. Thorpe's days as a competitive athlete were over. Without sports... Thorpe drifted. His drinking, an issue before, became destructive. There were many fights and almost as many jobs. He took odd jobs under assumed names, working as a painter, ditch digger, deckhand, auto plant guard, and bar bouncer. The 50s brought him renewed fame. Besides being voted the greatest athlete of the first half of the century by the Associated Press, with Babe Ruth placing second. He was portrayed by Burt Lancaster in the 1951 film, Jim Thorpe, All-American. Thorpe died at 64 of a heart attack on March 28, 1953. His body was moved to Machunk, Pennsylvania, a small town that changed its name to Jim Thorpe. It was not until October 13, 1982, that the International Olympic Committee finally agreed to restore Thorpe's gold medals. Thorpe became a charter member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, where a life-size statue of Thorpe adorns the lobby beneath the dome of the rotunda. He was voted number seven among ESPN's 50 greatest American athletes of the 20th century. In a poll of sports fans conducted by ABC Sports, Thorpe was voted the greatest athlete of the 20th century 
out of 15 other athletes, including Muhammad Ali, Babe Ruth, Jesse Owens, Wayne Gretzky, Jack Nicholas, and Michael Jordan. There wouldn't be an NFL without Jim Thorpe. He gave the league credibility as its first president and on-field star. Today, we know him most from faded photographs and newspaper articles. Yet his legend runs on. We hear the faintest echo of what he was, but it's loud enough. Had anybody been there to see the real thing, I think we'd call him hands down the greatest player who ever lived. And there you have it, the life of Jim Thorpe. And my goodness, you just don't realize then, I mean, that this guy was broke late in his life meant that he played sports for the love of sports. And by the way, this is at a day when football had not been commercialized. Track and field, my goodness, there were no such things as, as endorsement deals. These guys just ran and played and played and ran. And what a story. Great job on that, Greg Hengler, as always. Great job by the whole team. This is Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network and go to our This Day in History. There are a couple of hundred of them now, folks. You're taking a long drive. Download them. Everything from music to the arts to, well, sports. And, of course, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and all those old guys in wigs. Again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories.